So if you want to read along with me, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to the God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they'll become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord. Not for human masters, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there's no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. I'm so excited to have David Wade leading us through Colossians today. Um, you guys, Park Hill is a church that plants churches. So what that means is we have people that are ready to go who embed with us for a while, and then we send them out. So Candace and David are actually with us right now. David leads um, Race and Belonging Cohort, which he's gonna talk about today. He also leads Park Hill Youth. And then um, they're getting ready within the next little while to head out and plant a church, and I'm pumped about the vision that they have for their community that they're wanting to cultivate here in San Diego. So David's going to take us through this next section in Colossians. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I feel so special now. It's like she masked how intense the verse was in praise of me, you know? Uh, good morning, you guys. As Aaliyah said, my name's David Wade. Uh, my wife Candace and I were embedded church planners here. We love this church, and I'm excited to share it with you this morning. Today I get to continue our series on Colossians, which is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to help the church in Colossae mature into the image of Christ, to help them look like Jesus in their shared life together. And he has a special focus on unity in both the beautifully diverse church and within the Christian household. Now, all of this is rooted in the idea of renewal. Paul's idea that we're transformed or, or made new through the work of the cross, that we're invited into a whole new way of being human together. And this renewal, it doesn't just affect our private lives, but it rewrites all of our relationships as well. So just take a moment and imagine that you're sitting around a table, and at that table, like this is your house, you've invited these people over, and at that table is an ICE agent, an undocumented immigrant, a Republican politician, a Berkeley professor, 
a Black Lives Matter activist, an ex-con, a single mom, a former Muslim, a US veteran, a former Wiccan, and a pastor. Let's just say it's Evan for the sake of pardon. Now they all love Jesus, and they came to your house to share a meal and to hear Paul preach a message. So after dinner, Paul says, because of Jesus' work on the cross, you are now brothers and sisters. Jesus wants you to live together as family. Do you think they might need a little bit of help working that out? She's like, yeah, definitely. Like some guidance and some guidelines on how to make that real. Well, this is the kind of situation that Paul is speaking to in Colossae. But watch what he does. This is the verse right before what Aaliyah read. Verse 11. Here, he's talking about this renewal, this new life that we have in Jesus. There is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Now, if you remember our Galatian series, uh, One New Family, from a few months back, this passage hits a lot of similar notes. And in this new family, this new way of being human, there's no longer division based on cultural background or social status or whatever else used to divide us because at the cross, reality got a makeover. Everything was made new. And for those who are in Christ, we've become members of this beautiful, diverse family. Uh, we've become one with Jesus and one another in a special way. And that means that the Gentile and the Jew, right, those who were in and, and were out, are now both included in the family of God. Uh, barbarians and Scythians, which is like a, a racial slur towards an immigrant, those who were born outside of Rome, those who, the barbarian, like they, they talked like, a, like you couldn't understand what they were saying, and so it was like a slur against them. Those born outside are now equal to natural born citizens. And slaves may have a lower social status in the world, but in this renewal, in this house, in this family, they are the very image of their creator. See, the ancient world took for granted that there was this sort of natural hierarchy uh, with some destined to be on top and, in the, and inside while others are born to be on the bottom and outside. Ancient cultures from Greece, Egypt, Israel had a common view that the cosmos was founded on these sort of fundamental building blocks, pairs of opposites that comprised reality. Think something like yin and yang meets the Hindu caste system. But Paul says the cross is the great turning point of human history the rewriting of cosmic reality, the renewal. And while those old stories were designed to keep us apart from and opposed to one another, God's new story, our new reality, is unity in Jesus. This special oneness with God and with each other that transcends our tribes, our man-made barriers and boundaries as we are actively being renewed in the image of Christ through relationships. Why? Because all are made equal at the cross. Where our sin earns us death but is forgiven, and where the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead whispers to each of us, beloved son, beloved daughter, and where our beautiful diversity is woven into a reflection, an image, an icon of Jesus' love, the very heart of the Father, as a witness to a world desperate to belong. And so Paul says, you're one new family, now act like it. And this new way of being human, this unity between all these folks who used to dominate and exclude one another requires new attitudes and actions that overflow from a good theological idea into our practical daily lives. Amen? 
Which brings us to the first of our two big ideas today. Maturity looks like life together. So that table in your house, uh, everybody is super hype, right? Just imagine, they heard Paul preach and they're all super hype about the message of unity and the new humanity that he just shared. Like they're like, the cross changes everything. This is amazing, sign me up. They're starting to believe that they could actually do it and live it out together, but how? Like what does it look like? Let's look at verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So in these verses, Paul expects the work of the cross to become the work of the church, like you and me. And it's rooted in our identities, our new identities as beloved sons and daughters of God. But it's not just about me. Paul reminds the Colossians that not only am I beloved, but those who are the other by the old standards are loved and chosen and holy too. They're also God's children. We're, we're equal now, and since this is true, our new life together should look radically different marked by the quality and character of Jesus himself. And then Paul goes on to describe that character. God is not uncaring, he's compassionate. God is not harsh, but kind. God is not arrogant, but humble. He's not rough and rushed, but gentle and patient. We know this because Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father, the image of the invisible God, and this is how Jesus treats us. And so these virtues, this love, really is relational. It requires action aimed at others. Uh, my wife Candace always says, we get to put skin on God's love for people. We get to make him real in their lives. But that's really hard to do if we remain distant from those in this room, from our new family from our Park Hill communities, especially those that we feel are too different from us. See, in this passage, Paul assumes intimacy, that you are sharing life with people in such a way that will give you reasons to be impatient or unkind, that you're actually close enough for someone to see not just your Sunday face when your hair's done, and like, this is a new hoodie that I bought, you know, like, it's not just for Sunday, it's for like your mess when, when you don't have it all together, the areas of your life that are still run by the old order of things and way of thinking. One pastor has this great analogy of uh, how we act when someone knocks on our door and our house isn't clean. He's like, we kind of like either stand in the door frame to block them off or we kind of like step outside and shut the door, you know, so that they can't see the filthy animals that we really are. No, so they can't see inside, they can't see our mess, they can't see our brokenness. But if it's someone we know and trust, if it's the right person, what do you say? You say, oh, it's you. Come on in. If it's the right person, they might even help you clean up your mess. And this kind of open door relationship is risky, but we're called to both let people in and to go in and help people clean up. That's the Christian life that we're called to. And so ask yourself, who are you sharing life with that knows your mess? Like who really knows what's going on 
behind closed doors in your life. And it is only people that you would hang out with if you weren't a Christian. People who look like you, dress like you, think like you, grew up the same way that you grew up. Or are there some Jew and Gentile friendships happening, some cross-pollination, some people who say, that used to be my enemy, but now this is my brother and sister in Christ. And whoever it is, do they have access to your heart? Did they get to see you for real? Like, I'm really good at not getting mad at people that I don't care about. I'm so good at it. I'm actually amazing at forgiving people who just don't matter to me at all. Like, you know what I mean? If somebody like does something, I'm just like, ah, I'm a, I forgive you, I'm a good Christian. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, God bless, I'll never see you again. But the people who have my heart, my wife and my, my close friends, it's really hard because I expect more from them, right? And so sometimes we don't let people in or we don't invite ourselves into their lives because we have this deep fear of being hurt and let down. Community is hard. You will be hurt and let down. But part of the new reality is bearing with and forgiving one another as Jesus did for you. Like that's the witness of the 21st century. See, the world knows how to cut people off and cut people down when they hurt us, right? To either run away and never see you again or just attack you and hate you now when you break my heart. Everybody knows how to do that. But the church is uniquely called to stitch lives back together in unity. And the world needs to see that now more than ever before. So Paul goes on to describe this life together with four examples of what church or community should look like. Verse 15, he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. So again, there's this repetition. We are one body united in Christ with each other. So let nothing divide you. Peace, this idea of shalom and wholeness must govern you and your relationships. And then he says, let the message of Christ dwell, live among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. He's saying, you are called to give and to receive from one another, to teach and to call each other higher in Jesus. And you do this from having the word so deep down inside of you, to be so rooted and just like, Oh, that it literally overflows out of you in song and like words of wisdom and teaching that, that shows other people what Jesus is like. Like the spirit bursting out of you in song somehow imparts wisdom to one another about what kind of worship Jesus is worthy of. Last ser service, I, there's a song, I love it, I can't sing, but I got a river of life flowing out of, do you guys know that song? Anybody? Thank you. Okay. That's the Christian life we're called to together. Okay. I can kind of sing a little bit, actually. Uh, but that's the Christian life we're called to together. Okay. And it changes and transforms one another. So then whatever you do, Paul says, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Orient your entire being, wrap your life around Jesus, doing what he would do in whatever your situation, especially in your relationships. 
So Paul describes what our gatherings and communities should be like in these broad strokes, but at the root of them is this idea of dependence on one another, a commitment to serve and be served by one another as evidence that Jesus is among us. Because Jesus himself came to serve. And he modeled for us what a life of others-oriented, loving service looks like. And then he said, the world's actually going to know that I am real when you belong to me, when you treat each other in that same way. When you love one another the way that I have loved you. Like, we are participating in Christ, cooperating with the Trinity, when we partner with one another to demonstrate what Jesus looks like through the way we treat one another. Amen? Which brings us to our second big idea for today. Maturity looks like partnership. So imagine you're back at this table and all those diverse, beautiful people are like, okay, we get it. This new way of being human together is radical. It's going to be hard, but it's beautiful. And I want it. I see the vision, Paul, and we're in. Like, you know, Wiccans and Evan are just hanging out. Wiccans and Wickhams, you know, like they're hanging out for like a weekly date at Gentile. And then you got the former Muslim and the U.S. Iraq veteran like raising their kids together. Like we got this. But then it, it brings up these other questions, doesn't it? How does this thing affect my marriage? Or how I raise my kids or treat my parents? How does it change how I even think about my biological family relationships in the first place? And so at the end of this passage about our radically new life together, Paul's going to go there. He, he drills down into the specifics of Christian home life, what scholars call the household codes. Now, the household was the basic unit of Roman society, so these kinds of codes were very common. This is probably the earliest Christian take on one, however, and Paul is particularly concerned with how outsiders view the church. Now remember, the church was new. It was a new entity, a new group of people, a new organization that didn't exist before. And some people thought that they were a cult. Christians were accused of everything from atheism to insubordination against Caesar and Rome himself. Like us today, the Colossians were trying to figure out how to live out this new way of being human in the midst of an old way of being human all around them, but with much higher stakes. And so these verses we're about to explore they're going to feel patriarchal to some of us because in a very important sense, they reflect their cultural moment. Paul is writing in a world which the husband, father, and master had all the legal power and in their view, natural authority over his household, as well as all the responsibility for providing for them. This is a world in which slavery was as common as cars, where women were thought to be inferior to men and children were legally the property of their fathers. That doesn't mean Paul held all these beliefs, and Jesus certainly did not. On the contrary, the text we're about to read subverts each of these tropes in profound ways, precisely because of Paul's convictions about how the cross reshapes and reimagines everything, especially our life together. And so while we don't want to make the mistake of importing first century culture into the 21st century church here at Park Hill, uh, the underlying call to rightly ordered reciprocal relationships or, or, or partnership is good, godly, and 100% for us today. Uh, the, the 21st century American, or 21st century America actually has a lot of good going for it. Uh, especially the fact that it's a legally egalitarian liberal democracy as opposed to a patriarchal empire. 
right? Like there's no one guy that could just be like, I hate all Christians, I want everybody at Park Hill dead. But like in Paul's world, that could happen very easily, you know? Uh, in Paul's world, a father could say, I no longer want my son to be alive, and then he could hand him over to the authorities who would have him executed for any reason he wanted. Like we're in a completely different epoch of reality right now. Our culture has a lot going for it, but our culture is also the most autonomous, self-centric, and independent culture the world has ever known. And there's no Christian life that involves complete autonomy from one another, right? The invitation of Jesus is always to lean in and get closer to one another, to, to, to chase this oneness and this unity that we just talked about. See, the right kind of order and dependence of serving and being served by are super important to our shared life together as one new family in Jesus. And just like there's a general mutual submission between believers of diverse social status and cultural backgrounds that the cross has made possible, there's also a special way of life we're called to in our most intimate relationships, a new way of being human, particularly in marriage and parenting. So as we dive into this final section, I just want to like take a deep breath. Evan left town and said, David, do this, you know? Um, <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but I, wanna, I wanna really acknowledge that there's some of us in this room, especially some women, that have been abused or taken advantage of by bad teachings on this text. Or maybe even by folks outside of the church, like male authority figures in your life who made you feel diminished and less than and belittled in a really, really broken way. And that's wrong and dark and demonic, and I'm sorry. This church is a space for you to grow and to be healed and to be made whole and to flourish and to step into the fullness of who you are as we figure out this new life together. And at the same time, as the new family of Jesus, we wanna lift the word of God high and allow it to challenge and even change us this morning and uh, stir up our cultural norms as well, amen? Thank you so much, because this is a very difficult passage. <clears throat> um, and so the first pair in the household code uh, is the one that feels like the big one for many of us, and that's, that's wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord, and husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So here we have the assumption that marriage is between one woman and one man, and that they ought to relate to each other in a certain way. Wives are called to submit themselves, and husbands are called to love. It's agape, cross-shaped love, self-denying, Christ-like love. Yes, we are all called to submit to one another and to agape love one another. Just look at Ephesians 5.21 where Paul tells the entire church, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We're all called to a submission that honors Christ. The culture of mutuality is like the bedrock of our faith and this culture works itself out in a unique way in the context of marriage. So let's just look at these two terms, submission and love, one by one, and we'll start with submission. Submission is voluntary, subversive, Christ-like, and universal. Um, so voluntary, what do I mean by that? So I practice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, 
which if we've talked, you've heard me talk about. You know, I'm not even that good, but I'm better. I mean, I mean that's okay. Um, I practice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is a submission grappling sport. And the whole idea is like one person exercises their will over another person, and that person either like bows down and taps, or uh, they're broken, right? The, the slogan is, is tap or snap, you know? <laughs> tap or snap or nap if you gotta choke, you know? That's uh, exactly not the kind of submission that we're talking about in this text, okay? This word literally means to bring oneself up under, so it's a voluntary act that the wife does of her own free will out of reverence for Jesus. And this fact alone subverts the idea of subordination in the ancient context in which philosophers and religious leaders taught that women were created and destined to be subservient to men. But Christians practice a new way of being human, and that way is really the original way, the garden, where both male and female reflect the image of God and uh, rule over reality together with him, amen? Which brings us to this idea of Christ-likeness. God himself practices submission. If you read your Bible, you'll see that Jesus always submitted to the will of his Father and was led by the Holy Spirit. And so when we submit our submission, we're just doing what he did and following in his footsteps. And in his submission, he stands in solidarity with us. Like he knows what it's like to bring yourself up under another. And then lastly, submission is universal. Uh, it's not, first of all, it has nothing to do with like men and women that are not married. So it's nothing to do with men and women that are not married. Um, and submission to your, as a wife submits to her husband, it's not a one size fits all model. It's gonna look different for everybody, but it does apply to all wives. And it's gonna look as diverse and beautiful and different as the many diverse, beautiful and different marriages represented in this community. And so for the wives in this room, there is a way that you voluntarily submit yourself to your husbands that is ultimately about your self-submission to Christ. This way is not dictated by your husband or bad church culture, or the natural order, or even the social context of your time. Rather, it is a type of submission that takes into full account your equality as image bearers with your husband in Jesus and since creation, rooted in the, way, the new way of being human made possible at the cross. So then what about love? Love looks like dying daily Decentering yourself to put the needs of your wife and family above your own, even when it costs you. Right, husbands, this is agape, cross-shaped love as Jesus modeled. It's not, I really like how you make me feel good feelings, love. It's not, hey, if you do your part, I'll do my part, love. Like, you weren't submitting, so I'm not gonna, like, it's not what we're talking about. Here. And this idea that a man should uh, give up his own rights, that a man, a father or a husband, should lay down his life in pursuit of putting his wife's needs above his own and her desires above his own, that would have been rare at best in Paul's world, in which the entire household revolved around and served the husband father. See, the husband's call removes him from the center of the universe in imitation of Christ, who gave up his privilege and made himself nothing to come down here and serve us in the midst of our ultimate unsubmission to him. So husbands, you never have permission to be harsh or abusive or to get bitter at your wife. And you better never fix your lips to demand submission from your bride. <laughs> 
period. Because if you were to do so, you would be appealing to a dead and demonic system, or worse yet, your own misperceived authority as man over woman, which is exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And this can be super hard to live out in real life, right? Like this new relationship, this dance that we're trying to do. I feel like I'm a decent husband. Like my wife was here last service, I asked, and she gave me a thumbs up, and I was good. Um, and I still feel like I missed the mark like every single day. Like uh, literally last night, I'm working on this sermon, and we had a miscommunication with the grocery delivery, and so the groceries were outside on the porch in the sun for an hour, and the ice cream melted. And you would have thought that I was the, you know, I was just so distraught about the ice cream that I had this big hissy fit, and she kept the audio message. And, um, but like. <laughs> And then I had to repent, you know? I was unkind, it was not good, it was whack, I was wrong. Boo, David, you know? And so that's why it's super important to look at these verses in context. Because when we do, we remember the character of God that was just talked about earlier, right? God is not uncaring, he's compassionate. He's not harsh, but kind. He's not arrogant, but humble. He's not rough and rushed, but gentle and patient. And we know this because this is how Jesus treats us. So Paul is asking husbands to image this, to repeat this pattern of living towards their wives. He's appealing to wives and husbands to function as image bearers of God. And God is consistent. Having mankind bear his image is the way that has always been his goal. It was broken because we broke it, but now he's redeeming the image back to what was intended from the garden. He's refusing to allow marriages within the church to look like Rome or America or your Hispanic culture or your Indian culture, or whatever culture it is, and he's inviting us instead into fidelity, maturity, and mutual partnership. Husbands no longer have wives to be the means of power and to continue their lineage. Instead, they love as Christ does. And the wife lives in submission as a spiritual act of worship to God to image the coming kingdom and to display this reality for the husband as he lives in submission to Christ as well. A wife actually leads her husband by imaging submission so that he will follow and submit to Christ. And the husband actually leads his wife by loving her and she will now follow him in loving God without hindrance. This is not something to be afraid of, it's beautiful. So for the marriages in this room, as you already know, working out this call is a spirit-led journey you need to take with God's word in your marriage, in community, which includes all of our unmarried, celibate youth and older widowed folks as well. Hopefully this is a journey that brings healing, clarity, hope, and even joy as your marriage matures into a unique, beautiful, fuller witness of Christ and his bride to the world around you. Amen? So the next code is just as important, but we won't spend as much time here. And that's verse 20. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. So again, in, in Paul's world, children were super undervalued, and yet they had all this potential to bring honor or shame to their family name. Even once they became adults, the father had way more authority over them legally and socially than we have today because the father remained the head of the family until he died. I was reading one, like when I was preparing for the sermon, one of the stories was like, 
you know, I could be up here preaching and like the, to, the, to the group and then my dad could just be like, take him to jail. And somebody would just drag me away and like take me. Like that was, and nobody would stop me because that was like the order of reality in that time. Um, so while this could have raised some interesting questions for the new family called church, this new thing that was beginning, for example, what if an adult daughter became a Christian and her parents were not? We need to remember that God's heart for partnership not, is not simply between the sexes, but between the generations as well. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus came to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the children back to their fathers. Uh, Jesus came to bring reconciliation between generations where there was division. That's a big part of his ministry as Messiah. And God's design has always been that honor and obedience to parents teaches you how to live well and wisely in this world. There's a billion verses about that. And so the role of parents we see in scripture is to protect, correct, and provide for their children and to lead in reconciliation, right? To make things right when something has gone wrong. Think about the father jumping off the porch to run out to the prodigal son when he comes back home, amen? But then children also should entrust themselves to the Lord through their obedience to their parents, to actually listening and doing what your parents ask you to do. So to the young people in this room, teens, college, and, and maybe even some of us adults, your parents know some things that you do not know. Maybe even lots of things that you do not know. And just what would it look like in this season for you to entrust yourself to their wisdom as an act of entrusting yourself to Jesus? I know it's super hard and it can feel like we're losing ourselves and our identity we, when we entrust ourselves to someone else and, and obey instead of doing what we want, but Jesus actually said he only did the will of his father. There's a lot of verses where he said, I only do what I see my father doing. He modeled trust and obedience even when it cost him, but it was infinitely worth it, right? The life that we get to have together is because Jesus obeyed his father. Now, you're not gonna like save the whole world, but maybe, I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, you're, there's new life. The possibilities are endless of what can happen when we're working and operating in partnership in this way as we're supposed to. And then parents, your role of protecting, correcting, and providing for your children should be done in such a way that honors their personhood, like their individual identity, and always seeks their good. Your kid's not just an extension of yourself that you can try to like shape into this thing that you want it to be. They're a human being made in the image of God. And just because God entrusted them to you doesn't mean that you don't need to entrust them right back to him. I have two and a half young, well, my son is three and a half, my daughter's almost two and my wife's pregnant. So I say I have two and a half kids. And um, we find out, yeah, what we're having in April. And with our first son, Henry, I remember this moment we brought, it was like only a couple months in, he was upstairs sleeping in his crib and I was out um, on the porch and I had this, this like scary thought, like what if somebody came in the back door and just took him and I never saw him again? And in that moment, I was like really having like an anxiety, anxiety attack. And in that moment I was super bummed that I wasn't richer and more powerful and I didn't have an army and a better security system and I didn't know how to shoot guns and all this stuff to just try to protect my baby and keep him safe from everything that could ever go wrong in this world. I really had to reckon with my own limitations and dependence on God for the outcome of my child. Both like who he's gonna become and, and what this world is gonna throw at him. That doesn't mean I don't try my best and teach him wisdom and you know, train him to be the Admiral of Space Force, which is his destiny. Like, I just, I, 
but I have to reckon with the fact that I simply am not God, that I can't control him or what happens to him. Because true love requires freedom and trust, and that's so hard in this broken world. And so what I think Paul is getting at here when he says don't embitter your children or don't provoke them is he's saying don't become so overbearing or intense that you end up provoking them and making them bitter and dejected and disconnected from you, even if it's rooted in a godly concern for desire for their well-being. Like parents, entrust your child to your heavenly father, to our heavenly father, and then do your best to lead them the way he leads you. Amen? All right, and so finally, um, slavery, slaves. All right. <laughs> Verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from Jesus as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. And so there's a ton we can say about this passage. It's actually something I'm very passionate about, and I got to study in seminary a bit. Um, but first, I just want to remind us how different Paul's world was from our own. Like I said earlier that slavery was as common as cars, and I mean that. The institution of slavery was just taken for granted. Every empire, every society up until that point had been built on it. It was normal, unquestioned part of life. In fact, uh, some scholars think that as many as one-third of Rome's population were slaves. And then in the culture, like Aristotle, our great Western thinker, who was wrong about some stuff. Uh, he actually called slaves talking tools, and many were treated as subhuman. He didn't believe their brains were the same as a free person's brain. And so the very fact that Paul is addressing enslaved people in this way is humanizing. It's revolutionary and it's powerful. In fact, he's saying slaves too mirror the image of Jesus who came not to serve but, or excuse me, not to be served but to serve and that slave language that Jesus adopts about his own messianic role as savior. In fact, Paul identifies himself in Epaphras who delivered the gospel to Colossae as slaves of the gospel in Christ. And if you keep reading, you'll see that Onesimus, who was an actual slave from the community at Colossae who had fled and is coming back on Paul's orders. You can read this story in the letter to Philemon. Um, Paul refers to the actual slave not as a slave, but as the faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. And he charges Onesimus along with another man to read the letter aloud to the whole church like speaking the very words of God with Paul's apostolic authority. And so Paul and his apostolic crew identify themselves as slaves while the actual slave is given an apostolic speaking role. Why? Because there's a new way to be human in light of the new reality of heaven, infusing, invading, and transforming everything at the cross. The kingdom we've inherited and we live in, is, it's, it's upside down. It destroys all that came before it. And Paul wants the Colossians to reimagine what their life together must look like moving forward. 
Speaking of this topic, one scholar said, Paul's teaching brings us into an atmosphere in which the institution of slavery could only wilt and die. And the truth is, uh, Christianity actually did a lot to end slavery over the centuries, like more than any other religion or group or system or country, until it became racialized. Like, that's a bummer, <laughs> like a huge missed opportunity, you know? Um, it's one of the great tragedies of like the last 500 years, you know? Uh, the greatest traumas to ever affect the world and the church was deeply implicated in that. And, and that actually is one of the primary issues we wrestle with in the race and belonging cohort here at Park Hill. Who's, who's uh, race and belonging in here? Let's make some noise. Oh, we got some people, let's go. So we are like a small formational community that is wrestling and actively wrestling through uh, the church's legacy of racism and brokenness in this area and how we can now correct, heal from some of those things and then live out reconciliation and restoration at Park Hill and in San Diego uh, together. This is our second year doing it. Um, and actually after this series, there's gonna be a church-wide invitation, uh, our first one ever into some of the, the things that we've been working on. So you'll be hearing more about that in the coming weeks. Uh, I am super passionate about it. The elders here are super passionate about it as well. But that's not the context of this passage. In the Roman world, slavery was a broad class that people found themselves in for a variety of reasons. Uh, while many people were born into slavery or forced in as prisoners of war, some people even sold themselves into slavery because it was better to be a slave in some situations than free and poor. It wasn't racialized the way we think about it now. So in light of that information, I just want to take special note of two things. First, slaves had no family name, no legal rights, and no inheritance. But now in Jesus, they were co-inheritors of everything with Christ and with their Christian masters as well. Like, you go from being a talking tool and a piece of property, and what does Paul tell us as the church? He says, all of heaven is yours. And a slave is hearing that read and said in the same room as their master. You can see how this new reality would create some tension in the household, uh, something that could only wilt and die. I mean, imagine you're sitting around the table and Paul tells you that the guy you keep locked up in a shed in your backyard is now your brother in Christ and the very image of God. Things can't remain the same. <laughs> like if you believe it, if you actually believe that's what the Bible teaches, Something in that household has got to change. Does that make sense? Which leads to the second point, uh, verse 25. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So this verse is aimed directly at those in power who not only have the cross-shaped love of Jesus modeled to them that has to inform their actions and how they treat those in weaker social positions moving forward, but now they also have the fear of God, Paul says, who's gonna judge you for every dehumanizing sin that you commit. And your privilege can't save you. That's actually very, very good news and very, very new news for the original hearers. So I just wanna close with this. Some of you were abused by parents or spouses, or you have children who have broken your hearts, or God sees you, and he will make things right. 
like that master in heaven is coming back. He'll judge every sin. He'll make all the sad things come untrue. He'll be faithful to his word. And so if you are actively in an abusive situation right now, like escape, get out of there. This teaching is not a command to remain under abusive authority. Rather, it is a call to a new way of being human that images Jesus and assumes a cross-shaped, others-oriented love and obedience to God, especially from those with more social power in a given situation. That is awesome, earth-shattering, remarkable news, and it did not exist before Jesus, period. And so three things as we close, if, if uh, Drew, you guys want to come up, like what does this mean for you? Um, so what? How can you apply this to your life today? Become a slave like Jesus and Paul. Use whatever social status or privilege you have to love, serve, and bless others in the same way that Jesus used his status and privilege to love, serve, and bless you. Especially folks who are different from you. Second, you can open your heart again. Grant your community access to your mess. Invite them in. Be brave, forgive, be vulnerable. It's worth it. And then lastly, read your Bible and sing songs to Jesus. <laughs> like, be so filled with the word and the spirit that you overflow in such a way that transforms the community around you. We need you to be who God has called you to be so that we can be more who God has called us to be. And you're a gift. Because like when you're full, we get fuller, <laughs> you know? When everybody in this room is overflowing with word and spirit and scripture and song, it creates an atmosphere in which, man, I hear this message and there's heaviness and I want to be open and vulnerable, but there's brokenness. And yet in this space, it feels different. Like love is here. <laughs> a new reality is here. So I'm going to entrust myself to it. But like, it's not abstract, it's us, amen? We have to live it out together. And so, will you stand with me while we, while we pray? We're gonna close uh, with, with prayer and communion. Um, so yeah, uh, after I pray, you guys can come up and get communion and then Aaliyah is gonna lead us. And we'll have a few people that'll be on the sides to pray for you if you just want prayer during that time as well. But I just want to reiterate the fact that what Drew said earlier is real, like God is for you and he's inviting you into true life. So if this is a raw or heavy subject for you, that's a-okay, it's expected, we're here for you. Come get prayer, bring your questions, we're here to work it out together. But from a position of trusting that your father loves you and he's only inviting you into that which will make you look more like him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here with my new family, <laughs> your family that you're building and growing and blossoming into something beautiful in this city, uh, Jesus. I pray that you would teach us how to receive this word through your spirit in a language and in a way that makes sense and that we understand, God, that your spirit would minister to each heart individually in a way that we need in order to be able to receive God. And I pray that above all, we would together collectively orient our lives around you. 
that we would submit ourselves afresh to Jesus today. That we would choose obedience to Jesus again today because it is beautiful, because it's what he showed us, and because he's worthy of it all. We love you and we bless you, Jesus. Amen.